Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. This week on our show, women and the vote. From NBC News election headquarters, this is election night 88. Reported by Tom Lorena Gonzalez has this powerful memory from her childhood. And it was the Dukakis Bush presidential election. And I wasn't old enough to vote. Well, we're moving into the testing time now after one of the longest and bloodiest presidential campaigns that anyone can remember during the course Lorena was campaign. waiting for her mom to come home from work so they could head out together to the polling station at a nearby church. Her mom was an emergency room nurse in San Diego County, and she had to work an extra shift that day. So she was running late. She ran through the door and was like, all right, we got to get to the church. I got to go vote before the polls close. Lorena says running to the polling station seemed pointless because the election results had already been called on TV. NBC News now projects that George Bush is president-elect of the United States. We're back now and we have... But that didn't matter to her mom. Just that moment when she looked at me and she said, like, this is the one thing we do. They can't take this from us. She was so tired and she had blood on her shoes. Lorena Gonzalez says her mother didn't even bother to change her shoes before they made a mad dash for the polling station. Because it was that important for her to vote. And it always stayed with me. I, I never missed an election from the day I turned 18. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koga, and today I'm talking with Chloe Veltman, who's the arts and culture reporter for KQED. She's been interviewing women around the state about what the vote means to them. Women like Lorena Gonzalez. Since that November day in 1988, Lorena has gone on to become one of the most influential legislators in the Golden State. And as we hurtle towards a huge election, Lorena says women really matter. You know, whether it's white suburban women deciding this was not what they had signed up for or black women who have become our symbol of trust and guidance, Latinas who um, know that for the betterment of their children, their community, that they have to vote. I think women are very much going to matter in this election. Earlier this month came the news about Joe Biden's choice of running mate, California native Kamala Harris. Harris's selection is unquestionably historic. If elected, she would be the first woman to hold the job. And this comes as we mark an important moment in history. 100 years ago this week, women officially won the right to vote when the 19th Amendment was signed into law. Women's suffrage is a long story of hard work and heartache, crowned by victory. But let's get real. 
It was actually only a partial victory, even though women's votes make a difference at the polls and women like Kamala Harris are breaking barriers. The struggle for all women's rights in this country still continues to this day. As the journey to the 19th Amendment shows, equal access to the vote is a fragile thing. You can't just rely on amendments to make it real. It takes legislation, grassroots activism and widespread public will to make change. On today's show, we're going to meet women from all over the state who are striving to fulfill the promise of the 19th Amendment, to make equal access to the vote among all women a reality. For most years up until the time I was old enough to vote, there was no guarantee that Black people could vote in an election. That glass ceiling is so badly cracked, but it isn't down yet. I'm just really driven by the hope that we could once again be a nation of collaboration, cooperation, compromise. And I think we're a long way from that today. And so I realized if I want to see change, then I have to not just advocate for it, but be a part of the change that I want to see. So first, let's get caught up on the history of women and the vote here in California. Chloe, was the Golden State ahead of the game 100 years ago? Absolutely it was, Sasha. And I learned all about California's special place in suffragist history from historian Ellen Du Bois. The largest category of women who had full voting rights prior to the 19th Amendment were the women of California. Ellen is Professor Emerita of History and Gender Studies at UCLA. On October 10th, 1911, California became the sixth state where women could vote, nine years before the 19th Amendment made it the law of the land. So why was California so special among the states? Well, to answer that, Sasha, we have to go back in time a little further to 1879. That's the year California became the first state to get an equal rights amendment to its constitution. It stated the following... A person may not be disqualified from entering or pursuing a business, profession, vocation, or employment because of sex, race, creed, color, or national or ethnic origin. Well, it was rubbish, actually, because whole groups of people were still facing discrimination. But what Ellen says it did mean was that women could do things like enrol in the UC system. So for years, you've got all these educated women who are out there pushing for the vote. California was one of the hotbeds of progressivism. And progressives put a bunch of referenda and initiatives on the ballot And one was to change the state constitution to give women the right to vote. Ellen says the campaign that got them that right was modern and kind of high tech. It made use of the exciting new medium of silent movies. First of all, they took a melodramatic plot and they turned it around so that the hero was a suffragist. She won the heart of a handsome man. The evil villain was usually a politician who was trying to stop her. Sounds like Hollywood before there even was a Hollywood. So, Chloe, tell us a little bit about the women behind this campaign. 
But as on the East Coast, Sasha, the people here in California who got the most props were white women, like Maud Younger. But there were also some powerful women of colour. You've got black leaders like Sarah Massey Overton in San Jose. Then there's Maria de Lopez in Los Angeles. She campaigned and translated at rallies where suffragists distributed tens of thousands of Spanish language pamphlets. Uh, Clara Elizabeth Chan Lee spearheaded the efforts in Oakland's Chinese community. So even though there's all of this entrenched racism, there are activists from these excluded populations like Lee who are playing a vital role in the fight for the women's vote. So women in California win the right to vote in 1911. But why does it take nine more years for it to become law across the whole U.S.? Well, because, Sasha, racism. Professor Ellen Dubois says some eastern and southern states had thrown themselves behind an effort to stop anyone who wasn't white from voting, especially black men, whose votes they suppressed through tactics like voting taxes, literacy tests and your basic violence and intimidation. These states, which were controlled by white supremacist Democratic Party, had finally gotten black men out of the electorate and they'd be damned if they were going to do anything to let black women in. So in other words, it was a long slog to get the required three quarters of the states to ratify the 19th Amendment. So in 1920, the 19th Amendment passed, and we're celebrating the 100th anniversary this month because it was ratified August 18th and signed into law on the 26th. And women play a pivotal role in that year's presidential election, swinging the vote from the Democrats, who had traditionally been resistant to the suffrage movement, to the Republicans. And Warren Harding is elected president, and that same year, Rita Barshak is born. I was born the year women got the vote. Over the course of her long lifetime, Rita has rallied public support for a bunch of causes in Los Angeles as a member of the League of Women Voters. The Los Angeles region now stands at the threshold of a new dynamic era in transportation. She's particularly proud of her efforts to push through attacks in the early 1980s to improve and expand LA's public transit system in underserved neighborhoods. Rail transit is coming back to Los Angeles County. Indeed, the future is now. I became a spokesperson because I was young, I was attractive, and they wanted me to be the face. And we got that tax passed. Rita says she's always prided herself on having a strong voice as a woman. Exercising her right to vote is an important part of that, but she says it's taken women a long time to assert themselves at the ballot box. Being a housewife is a big bore. Cook the meals, do the dishes, make the beds, dust the house. Many white women of Rita's generation, like Lucille Ball's character in I Love Lucy, were stuck at home being housewives. And Rita says they didn't feel smart enough to make their own decisions. I think a lot of women turned to their husbands and said, how shall I vote? And that continued for a long, long time. Rita Barshak says women have much more confidence in their own opinions today. But she says barriers still exist. We have come far, but oh, so not far enough. So not far enough. Well, especially for women of color and immigrants. I mean, there's so many more barriers when it comes to voting. When it comes down to it, the 19th Amendment was actually mostly a win for white women. Right, Chloe? 
Exactly, Sasha. I mean, let's not forget that there were entire groups of people, both women and men, who couldn't vote in 1920. Native Americans weren't considered US citizens until 1924. And it wasn't until, what, 1952 that all people of Asian ancestry could become citizens and vote. Yeah, and states used all kinds of voter suppression tactics to keep Black and Latinx people away from the ballot box for decades. One woman I spoke with, Maxine Anderson, knows all about that. She's a Black woman who lives in San Francisco, and she believes deeply in the power of the vote as a way to fight inequality. And the thing Maxine remembers most vividly about the very first election in which she was eligible to vote was the machine. I mean, it was a really big machine. It was 1971 and the clunky old lever-operated voting apparatus hadn't yet been replaced by more modern voting systems where she lived in Chicago. You flip levers for whatever you were going to vote for. It's like click, 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 pull, and then you were out of the voting booth. Voting was a big deal for Maxine's family because it was a novelty. For most years up until the time I was old enough to vote, there was no guarantee that Black people could vote in an election. The Voting Rights Act, prohibiting racial discrimination in voting, wasn't passed by President Lyndon B. Johnson until 1965, when Maxine was 15. In many places in this country, men and women are kept from voting simply because they are Negroes. Their cause must be our cause too. Maxine's parents grew up in Mississippi, where voter suppression was rife. Even though my father fought in World War II, his access to the vote wasn't there. Her family's history of disenfranchisement in the South and growing demonstrations against the Vietnam War helped her not only to see the importance of voting, but also of getting to grips with the policies that shape the voting system. It's the policies that make a difference. She volunteers as a voter education advocate in San Francisco, and she says she's made it her business to deeply understand what's in the voter guides and make sure everyone around her does too. Read the ballot measures. I mean, really read the ballot measures. Maxine admires the suffragists for their achievement 100 years ago. But she says we still have some distance to go to make voting easy and safe for all. She's concerned about the impact the coronavirus might have on this year's voting process. Mail-in ballots are a way to keep people safe. And she's frustrated with the current administration's attempts to discredit this method of voting. Thousands of votes are gathered and they come in and they're dumped in a location. And then all of a sudden you lose elections that you think... Not that she plans to stay home this November. I have not mailed a vote by mail in years. Maxine and her sister have this whole routine of debating the candidates and ballot measures around the kitchen table. They fill out the paperwork together and then Maxine drops their ballots off by hand at City Hall. She's got to have the I Voted sticker. Chloe, I think so many of us can relate to that sticker thing. I mean, there's just something about that moment when you step out of the voting booth and you get to put that sticker on your collar, on your shirt, that's just really powerful. Yeah, Sasha. And for one of the women I spoke with, it's a particularly emotional ritual. I think every time I voted, I have always cried. That's Aida Hurtado. She's a Chicano and Chicana Studies professor at UC Santa Barbara. 
She spoke at the Women's March on Washington, D.C. in January 2017. And so I want to say, believe in education. Believe in the vision that education gives you. She feels the weight of generations of not only women, but also of immigrants and people of colour who fought hard for people like her to be able to vote. The act of voting is an assertion of your humanhood and of your right to determine your destiny. It's all in that little X. You know, all those monumental decisions are encapsulated in this tiny little booth with a crooked little pencil that you put a mark on. Aida's parents were farm workers. She says they came to the U.S. from Mexico because they wanted their kids to get an education. Knowledge is power. They can take away your house, they can take away, you know, your car. But my dad always used to say, what's in your head, nobody can take that away from you. She knows what lengths people in power will go to to keep others away from the ballot box. The Trump administration said Tuesday that it will reject any new applications for the so-called Dreamer immigrant program. The threat to the program providing a path to U.S. citizenship for tens of thousands of young immigrants is just one barrier. There are also other less obvious ones, like making it hard for people to access things like technology, transportation and voter education in any language other than English. Those structural impediments are an indication of how powerful the vote is. Otherwise, you wouldn't be taking such extreme measures to exclude people. Aida Hurtado says that's why it's crucial for those who can to vote, even if the system is far from perfect. It's that hope that little by little you're eroding these barriers, which I think we are, that gives you that sense of triumph. You're listening to the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca, and I'm joined today by KQED reporter Chloe Veltman. As we look back over a hundred years since the signing of the 19th Amendment and look forward to the November elections, Chloe's been asking a diverse group of women from around our state about what voting means to them. Chloe, first I want to ask you, what does voting mean to you? What's your relationship like to the ballot box? Well, Sasha, I didn't actually get to do a whole lot of voting in the country that I grew up in, in England, um, because I left to come here to the United States shortly after college. Um, and I wanted to stay very much. And it was um, a 13 year journey for me to earn citizenship. Some challenges along the way, of course, nothing like the challenges that some people face. Um, but I, I remember that I was so excited as soon as I was done with the uh, ceremony in Oakland at the Paramount Theatre, the naturalisation ceremony. I registered to vote right then, uh, the day that I became a US citizen, right there. It was so meaningful to me. And um, of course, I've continued to be a regular voter ever since. What about you, Sash? Well, I also grew up with you know, voting being really important in my family and in my house. And I think for me, that memory really started with my dad's naturalization ceremony. You know, he's an immigrant from India. And I remember being in an auditorium in Los Angeles when I was six years old and watching him, you know, 
take the oath to become a citizen and, and also immediately, like you, registering to vote. And ever since then, you know, he took me to the polling place every single time he went to cast that ballot and made sure that I understood how important it was. And of course, got me the little sticker uh, to put on my collar every every time we went to vote. Yeah, you know, Sasha, one of the things nearly all the women I spoke with have in common is the role parents and other caregivers play in teaching children about the importance of voting. I heard this from people across the board, like Kristen Olsen. And Kristen is a businesswoman in Modesto who also serves on Stanislaus County's Board of Supervisors. She's a registered Republican. And she told me her parents would always bring her along to their polling station on election day. We regularly talked about politics and policy at the dinner table and the privilege of voting as an American. Honey Mahogany's parents instilled the same passion for voting in her too. Honey's a transgender political activist in San Francisco. She told me her parents escaped war-torn Ethiopia as refugees in the late 1970s. You know, my parents didn't stray away from talking about human rights and, you know, fighting for justice and... I was surrounded by that. And so I think I I felt it was just natural that when I turned 18 that I would start voting. And Honey's activism hasn't stopped with voting. She's a member of the San Francisco Democratic County Central Committee and works as an aide to a local supervisor. So it sounds like Honey's parents, who were immigrants, you know, fled war and political oppression and came to this country and then embraced political activism as a part of their everyday life. Yeah, exactly, Sasha. But that's not every political refugee story. I met a young woman from an immigrant family whose parents felt very, very differently about voting when they came to this country. Gerline Cormander is from a small town near Fresno. She's 21 years old. My hobbies include playing soccer, watching TV. I'm an Arsenal fan. Gerline is also a big fan of politics. She's studying for her bachelor's in political science. She does a lot of voter registration and education on campus. And in her household, she's the one who's been schooling her parents about the power of the vote. They were just like, oh, we don't want to vote. But I would be like, no, like you should vote. You are a citizen of the United States. Your taxpayer money goes into the system. We should have a say in how things work. When her parents came to the U.S. as refugees in the early 1990s, they found jobs as farm workers. She says her mom and dad came of age in India during the previous decade when India was in a state of political turmoil. Rioters set more than 60 houses alight, throwing stones at Sikh property and damaging everything in sight. The assassination of Indira Gandhi by her Sikh bodyguards in 1984 led to days of violence against Sikh people in the capital Delhi and elsewhere. Thousands were killed or displaced. Many Sikhs left their homes and went into hiding. Gerline Kormander says events like the Sikh massacre destroyed her parents' belief in the democratic process. She grew up hearing about how corruption in India was so widespread, voting was at worst suppressed and at best a pointless exercise. So she says it took some persuasion to change her parents' attitudes. But she finally got them on board. Now they're telling my brother, like, oh, you should vote too. They actually took a really positive approach to it um, because they realized that, like, we should really be part of this system. Well, you know, it's amazing when we look back at 100 years of women voting and taking political action, just how much of a role young people like her have played. Yeah, even though a rose-perfumed matronly image lingers over the suffragists' movement to this day, young women have always been there on the front lines. I mean, just look at the Me Too movement and the ongoing fight to get a nationwide equal rights amendment passed. 
I mean, I actually have a memory when I was eight years old. My mom took me to Washington, D.C., and we chained ourselves to the White House fence for ERA. And I still have this button that says ERA. Yes, it's a green and white button. It's a little rusty now, but I, I still have it. I mean, we've got to mention also the youth turnout at the Women's March of January 2017 in Washington, D.C., where young leaders like Naomi Wadler gave speeches. My friends and I might still be 11, and we might still be in elementary school, but we know. We know life isn't equal for everyone, and we know what is right and wrong. That Women's March echoed grassroots actions of 100 years ago, when thousands of suffragists descended upon the capital to push for the right to vote. The women's suffrage procession of 1913 was the first massive organised political march on Washington. But it sidelined women of colour... In 2017, though, women and girls of colour, like Naomi, led the Women's March. We also know that we stand in the shadow of the Capitol, and we know that we have seven short years until we, too, have the right to vote. Wow, she's 11. Amazing. I know. Yeah, I know. That is amazing, right? I mean, so many of these young leaders aren't even old enough to vote yet. Like Ariana Nasiri, and she's 17, and she's a member of San Francisco's Youth Commission. Ariana said she was casting about for something to do a few summers ago, so she decided to apply for an internship at San Francisco City Hall. She sent in her paperwork, waited for about a month, and was thrilled to get an interview with then-city supervisor London Breed, who's now San Francisco's mayor. I show up to the interview, and London Breed's legislative aide goes, oh my goodness, you must not have graduated high school yet. And I said, well, no, I'm actually uh, going into eighth grade. Ariana says it was only at that point her 12-year-old self realised the internship was meant for college-age applicants. The whole office started laughing, but I, they ended up actually giving me the position. That internship kick-started Ariana's political career. Since she joined the city's youth commission in 2017, she's appeared on the podium alongside Nancy Pelosi. I'd like to begin by once again thanking Speaker Pelosi and her office for asking me to come here today and speak to you all on the importance of voter representation in our nation's electorate, as well as maintaining an integral election system. And she's leading the campaign to lower the voting age in San Francisco to 16. San Francisco young people pay taxes, drive, pay for San Francisco uh, MTA, and they're enrolled in San Francisco Unified Schools. And these young people have voices that are currently absent in the electorate. In the lead-up to the 2016 election, local youth worked around the clock to rally support for lowering the voting age. Today we are going to knock on people's doors about yes on F. If Proposition F had passed, it would have made San Francisco the first major US city to allow 16 and 17-year-olds to vote in municipal elections. Prop F only lost by around three percentage points. A new Vote 16 measure is scheduled to appear on the ballot in the upcoming November election. Ariana Nasiri sees a direct link between the effort to enfranchise young people today and the struggle the suffragists faced on the long, hard journey to secure the 19th Amendment. After the 2016 election, a lot of young people in the city were discouraged, but there were dozens of attempts to get the 19th Amendment passed before it was actually passed. So... Who are we to assume that our fight is going to be any easier? Ariana says young people should see a message of hope in that. 
Chloe, thank you so much for sharing all of these inspiring voting stories from so many California women. Thanks, Sasha. It's an honor. And by the way, the music we're listening to right now is called The Battle for the Ballot. It's a brand new orchestral work all about the 19th Amendment by California composer Stacey Garrop. The piece just had its virtual world premiere at the Cabrillo Festival in Santa Cruz. The ballot, the sign of power, the means by which things are brought to pass, the talisman that makes our dreams come true. When I am asked to give the reasons why women should have the ballot, the reasons are too many to name. At every turn... Chloe Beltman is KQED's arts and culture reporter. She interviewed a ton of women for this project, and you can hear and read some of their stories if you head to California Report. And hey, while you're there, we want to hear more about your personal voting story. If you have one to share, you can fill out the online form on our website. Again, that's CaliforniaReport.org. And that's it for our show today. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. And Rob Spate is our technical producer. Our team also includes Kathleen Quillian. Asala Sanapur, and Ariela Markowitz. Special thanks to Tamara Martin of the California State Archives, Elizabeth Leslie with the League of Women Voters, and Andy Lancet from WNYC for the archival sound. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to vote if you can. People fought hard for that right. This is the California Report magazine. Your state your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Paint Care. Ideas for storing leftover paint to keep it fresh and tips for using it up can be found at paintcare.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.